0: Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. We're starting a brand new series, message series this morning called My Life Verse. Would you say that with me? Say, My Life Verse. And that's exactly what it is. We're going to be looking at our life verses. Today, I'm going to preach to you from my life verse, one passage of scripture that is really monumental in my life and following Jesus. And then next week, Pastor Chad's going to preach to you his life verse. And then, guess what? The third week is going to be so exciting because I'm going to take the top three life verses of everybody in the congregation. You say, Craig, how do I know that? because I'll go out in the lobby and look at the picture that I want you to engage over the next few weekends, all right? You can write your life verse, take a picture, hang it on the wall, and then I'm going to preach from those texts. And then the final one, as you saw in the 411, there on Thanksgiving Sunday, we're going to have Young Communicator Sunday. where you are going to hear from four communicators within this church of their life verses. So it's going to be an awesome, awesome month to really invite friends. We do this for the sake of not just those in our community, but to see others come to know Jesus, amen? And so I I want to uh, jump in today if you have a Bible, I would love for you to go with me in the scripture. The reason being is I want you to see within your own personal copy of the scriptures that which I talk about. Say, Craig, why do I do that? Why do you ask that? Because there's nothing like. Creating a working relationship with your own copy, right? And we put them on cards, we'll put it on the screen. But what I've learned is that subconsciously, as you hear God speak to you in the gathered assembly and you're holding your Bible, what you'll do is subconsciously, when you go open your Bible at home, you'll expect God to speak to you through it. And it's something very subtle, but something very important in the life of a congregation, okay? And this is why I love digital Bibles, but. But on some level, I don't want you to use just the card every weekend to read the Scripture. I want you to grab your thumbs. I want you to fill the pages. I want you to see God speak to you through your Bible to create a a working relationship with the copy of the Scriptures. But I want you to go to Psalm 25 if you have a Bible this morning. If not, no big deal. We will put it up on this big digital Bible for you in front of you, all right? I felt like I needed to start this morning by sharing a little bit of personal note, if I can. I have been in a, a challenging season, to say the least, over the last few weeks. Um, I, I live transparent. I lead. I don't know how any other way to lead than transparently. I, October was was one of, if not the most difficult month of my life uh, in a lot of respects, in a lot of ways. It's very challenging. And in the midst of, midst of that month, um, as my wife was such a rock to me and a picture of God's grace, I began to take scriptures and promises of God and began to pray them fervently, I want to share with you two verses of scripture that I'm praying over my life, my future over this next year. I want to share that because I want you to come behind your pastor, if you will, and give a hearty amen to just praying them with me, to come into agreement with these passages of scripture. Number one, Psalm 67 is what I've been praying. I'm not going to read all of Psalm 67, but all of Psalm 67 talks about the blessing of God. But every time God blesses His people, He does so with one desire, and that's that the nations would be blessed. God. Bless- Blesses individuals that the nations would be in mind and i'm praying that god would bless this church I'm praying that god would bless our lives as leaders in this new year With the nations in mind that we would see dwelling place church planting movement continue to move forward in the brand new year That we would see god do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask think or imagine. Amen Second one i've been praying is proverbs 10:22, and this is what the bible said as god has made us rich In blessing, the Bible says God adds no sorrow with it. Wow, I've been praying that, that God, you would bless me in this year, you would bless us in this year, and you would add no sorrow with it. And here's what I've been praying, God, I don't want any sorrow in my relationship with you in 2019. I don't want any sorrow in my health, I don't want any sorrow in my relationships, and I don't want any sorrow in this ministry. And I believe that that's what God can do. Pastor Chad's agreeing with me, you say, Craig, that's a kind of a big prayer, I know, but I'm asking for agreement. And so might as well just go and ask you, if you're in agreement to pray these with me, can you just say amen? Amen. Amen. That's what we're gonna pray as we move into this new year. So let's get on with this message this weekend. Psalm 25. If that again you have your Bibles. Psalm 25 is an amazing, amazing passage. You're gonna hear over the next few weeks different passages of scripture. I'm so excited about Young Communicator Sunday because one of the one of the things we say at this church is we always say we are committed to raising up leaders. And it's gonna be awesome to see that happen right in front of our eyes, right? But I want to consider this weekend the prayer. God, which is the right way to go? Which is the right way to go? Now, I have had, a, quite honestly, a challenging time coming up with what my specific life verse is because I have several of them. This one, when I really think about it, is the number one message God has used me to preach in the last 12 years of pastoral ministry. When I feel that God has asked me to serve his people, it's to help people discern and discover the will of God for their life. To really know directionally where they should turn, what decisions they should make as it relates to the, the trajectory of Jesus Christ for their life. And I don't know about you, but all of us have prayed this prayer at some point. God, which is the right way to go? Which is the right way to go? God, what is your will? Which school should I go to? Should I go to grad school or should I not go to grad school? Should I go out with him or should I break up with her? Should I take the job over here or should I not take that job? Or maybe even more serious questions like, is it right to separate from my husband in this season? Because that's when I get pastorally a lot. Is it right to just kick my kids to the curb in the season because they're drug addicts and they won't stop with their drugs, and I'm just going to have to allow them to live homeless for a few seasons or a few months? That's a question I get a lot in pastoral counseling. Like, which is the right way to go? All of us have been in a time where we didn't know what to do, and we asked God for help, Right? We ask God, like, what? I need your help. How many of you, let's just do a quick test, a laboratory test. How many of you right now, you're in a season where you're praying in some way, God, which direction should I go? Just raise your hand. Look at this. Look, look, leave it up just a minute. That's two-thirds plus of the congregation, all right? God, which direction should I go? It's probably one of, I would say, the main causes of stress in our lives. Understanding that, God, this is what you have for my life. I want to know. Make it clear. Um, My son says that I should preach with props more, so it makes it a little more interesting. So I'm going to give you some props today, all right? Let me give you one of the props. anybody ever remember the Choose Your Own Adventure novels back in the '80s? anybody remember Choose the Own Your Own Adventure? I love these books. When I was a kid, this one's called The Cave of Time. But Choose Your Own Adventure, amazing, amazing text. And 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 one of my favorites as a kid is this one. You you would be reading the book and then you would have a choice. You the, the book would say something like this. You'd be on page 62, and it would say you're being chased by a flock of rabid wolverines, and an old lady invites you into her house to escape. If you want to accept her invitation, turn to page two. If you don't want to accept her invitation, turn to page 130. I would be like, well, I have no other options other than to run from the rabid wolverines right now, so I'm going to turn to page 210. You would turn to page 10, 210, and it would say, turns out she was a witch, and she put a spell on you, and she cooked you in her stew, the end. And you're like, Dang it, man, I should have gone to page 130. And and so many times when I was reading Choose Your Own Adventure, I'd be like, oh, man, if I could only know the end. Do you know what I've found in pastoring people? That's exactly how people see the will of God. They think it's a choose your own adventure. They actually think we have two doors in front of us. One leads to peace and prosperity. One leads to doom and destruction. And God's really sly and doesn't really delight in you picking the right one. That he's real slide. He wants you to make you search crazy and rapidly and go after it like with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and if you pick one, you're going to be great, blessing, prosperity. If you pick the other one, doom and destruction. And so many times I think we feel like if I only knew, how do I figure it out? If this tells you anything about my personality, eventually in reading these books, I would start on the last page because I realized the last page was the best ending and then I would reverse engineer to the rest of the story. Okay? And I don't know about you, but I've asked God for the reverse engineer button before. Okay, God, I want the reverse engineer. Let's start with the good, prosperous ending, and then let's work our way backwards, right? Like, and then how do we know what God wants in those situations? Like, How can you know what God really looks like or sounds like when he speaks to you? Does he give us some warm, serene feeling of peace when we think about the right decision? Does he give us a strange sign in the heavenlies that we're doing what he's asking us to do? A pastor friend of mine told me that a man in his congregation was making a huge life decision, a major life decision. And he said his friend told him he was pulling back into his driveway when he was praying one night with his dad and seven doves took up out of the yard. And, and he said, see, son, there's my sign. The dove is God's sign. It's preferred animal to show his will like Noah sending out the dove. And like Jesus, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And seven is God's number of completion, which means the decision over, God is with me. And he looked at his friend and he said, um, with all due respect, we are in Georgia, so there were probably pigeons, not doves. But nonetheless, and do you want to make a life decision based off of something like that when it could just be a coincidence is that the really the kind of thing we're looking for when we say we want God's will is that the strange sign and so you're like oh this you're shaking your head in dismay well don't shake your head in dismay because we've all done something like this right how many of us we realize prop number two how many of us we've want you remember these things Yeah, you remember these things? This is what we want God to be. You remember this? Remember the old magic eight ball? We want God to be like a magic eight ball, right? Like we keep one of these around the church office to make big decisions for the life of this congregation. So um, no, not really. I I had my assistant Tony find one, but you remember these things and you would shake them like like something like this. Like, will I preach more than an hour today? Up to you, up to you. No, I'm just kidding. I won't preach more than an hour. Um, Are cats evil and of Satan? No doubt about it. No doubt about it. There it is. There it is. Um, is Brad Pitt the greatest actor of our generation? You know what? Some things you don't need an eight ball to figure out. They're self-evident, right? They're self-evident. But you, you don't understand what I'm talking about. We, we want God to be the magic eight ball where we can ask a question and say, God, how do I know what God wants me to do? What, what I want to do this weekend is I want to acquaint you with one of my new favorite psalms. I guess I landed here this weekend because of maybe where I'm at in my life, in the life of my family of what God would ask us to do. But, but I want to land at Psalm 25 because Psalm 25 is about how God guides us. It's about how God actually leads us. Now, one word of perspective before we totally dive in. I don't want to burst your bubble, but I need to tell you. Up until about 50 years ago, there was no talk for 2,000 years of church history about knowing the will of God at least in terms of personal decision-making. Now, I know we're obsessed with it in the modern world, but if you study every sermon of the early apostolic area or the Reformation, you cannot find a single sermon on the topic of finding the will of God at least as it relates to individually discerning the will of God. It was always about the community. Now, today, of course, in America, we're obsessed by it. It's the most popular seminar at any given conference. It's the one that sells the most books in any Christian store, and it's the question, as a pastor, I get asked most often. That in itself can teach us something about American culture. You say, Craig, what does that teach us? Previous generations didn't worry about discerning the will of God, but in our culture, we are all about individualism, And we are all about self-actualization and security for our lives. And we think the will of God is our way of getting those things. That's why we're not comfortable when God moves us from our comfortable pasture. We don't think that's his will. See, we use self-actualization and the will of God to get what our heart longs for, which is security. It guarantees, if you will, we get those things. Many of us, I've told you before, have turned the will of God into an idol, and we want to know the will of God more than we want to know God himself. And what happens is we think finding the will of God will remove and help us achieve our dreams and live our best life now. We write books about this. Problem is no one in Hebrews 11 was living their best life now. You live your best life later, (laughs) okay? Your best life later. We're talking about a kingdom life, right? But we we feel this way Now, the Bible, listen, church, does talk about God's guidance in our lives, no doubt about it, but it puts the emphasis in different places. It puts much more emphasis on knowing and trusting God and becoming the kind of person that God wants you to be more than it ever does on detecting some mystical guidance in a particular decision. In fact, can I give you the thesis for today? If I'm writing a paper, I'm going to give you the thesis right here in the introduction. Here's your big idea for the day, and I've only got one. The question in this psalm and pretty much in every place in the Bible is not how how God guides, but whom God guides. The question of biblical direction is not how God guides us. It's what kind of person does he guide? Not how God guides us through life, but whom does God guide? In other words, guidance is not as much something God gives to you as it is something he does for you. So the question today is, are you the kind of person that God guides? Are you the kind of individual that is guided by God? Let's look at Psalm 25. This is a Psalm of David, and it's so beautiful because he's both rejoicing over God's guidance and yet asking for God's guidance. And I think it's a template for us. Look at, start right in the smack middle of it. We're going to read the whole thing eventually, but let's look, look in the middle of it, 12 and 13. Psalm 25, 12 and 13. Who is this person who fears the Lord? He will show him the way that he should choose. He will show him the way he should choose and he will live a good life and his descendants will inherit the land. So the guidance that God that David trusts God for, and this psalm touches a lot of different things. That's why perhaps it's one of my favorite verses because it touches a lot of different things. There's allusions to relationships. There's an allusion to family. There's an allusion to career choices. There's an allusion to parenting. Parents, listen up. You want to be a wise parent? Look what he says. That your children would inherit the land. Look at your Bible. Look at it open. Verse 15, look what it says. David trusts God to keep him from disaster. He said, keep my feet from tripping in the net. Tripping in the net. Look at verse 7 he trusts God to guide him through the things that are bringing him stress anybody got stress in your life right now? verse 17 says that God would guide David through the stressful seasons of life so if your thought in here today is that maybe God only cares about the spiritual stuff maybe God only cares about the spiritual you need to put that away because we see David trusting God's guidance over every square inch of his life I tell people a lot of times God does not care about your spiritual life he cares about your whole life And he intends to redeem every part, relationally, vocationally, career, your mind, your pursuit, your education, your health, everything. God does not care about our spiritual lives. He cares about our lives, all of our lives, every square inch of our life. David sums up his hope at the beginning of the psalm. Look at verse 2. He says, my God, I trust in you. Do not let me be disgraced in anything. Don't let me be disgraced, God, in anything. Don't let me be disgraced in anything I pursue, God. Look at verse 20, the end of the psalm. He says, guard me and rescue me, God. Don't let me be put to shame. Again, what is he saying? Don't let me be disgraced. Don't let me be put to shame in any area of my life for I take refuge in you. Now, before we describe the person and the kind of person that God guides, I wanna give you two precious promises. You ready? Everybody say two. Let me give you two precious promises. First of all, verse two, David declares, others cannot mess up God's will for me. I need to say that again. Other people cannot mess up God's will for me. I don't care what you think another person has done to you. Other people cannot mess up God's will for you. That's good news in a world that's racked with pain. That's really good news in a world that's racked with about 50% of teenagers having received some form of sexual abuse or sexual trespass by the time they're 18 years old. That's really good news that others cannot mess up God's will for my life. Some of you say, well, where do you see that? Look at verse 2. David talks about his enemies who are trying to ruin his life. And he says, don't let my enemies gloat over me. Look at verse 19. Consider my enemies, God. They're numerous. I got all these enemies, God. They hate me violently. Some of you, if you'll look at me real quick, some of you look back in your life right now and you see some. You see how somebody really messed you up. Maybe it was a dad who did it intentionally. Maybe it was a dad who didn't do it intentionally. Maybe it was a mom. Maybe it was a brother. Maybe it was a spouse. Maybe it was an uncle who sexually abused you or touched you inappropriately. Maybe it was uh, somebody who beat you or spoke words of dereliction against you and destroyed you internally or verbally, I don't know what it was. Maybe they did it intentionally, maybe they didn't mean it, but David had those people too, and he had them all the way surrounding him, and he said, God, I trust that your promises are greater and more powerful than even any of their evil intentions against me. I trust you, God, that your promises and your words are more powerful than anything anyone can do with me. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you're new to church today, I can't help but think of Joseph. You know the story of Joseph. His brothers sinned against him greatly in a way that was very mean. They sold him into slavery, threw him in a pit, was sold to the Ishmaelites, taken into Egyptian slavery. He had unjust accusations against Pharaoh's or Potiphar's wife. Said that she wanted, she said that he did something inappropriate to her and he didn't. And he got he got he got almost 30 years of unjust accusation, and he suffered greatly for it, and he suffered, but ultimately God used those things in his life as a way of fulfilling Joseph's destiny. And at the end of his life, he summarized it to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He looked at his brothers who were there from Egypt. Israel because there was a famine in the land and he had every chance to show justice against his brothers. And you know what he said to his brothers? He said all these things you did to me and you meant them for evil and they hurt me but God meant them for my good. In other words you can't mess up the will of God for my life. Other people in my life can't mess up God's will for my life. And you listen to me. For those of you in the room who are having a hard time forgiving somebody who's done you wrong and you're holding and harboring bitterness you need to listen to this preacher real quick. The only thing that will enable you and enable Joseph to forgive his brothers. It's not that Joseph released them and said, you didn't have any responsibility for your actions. No, he just said, I realized that when God had a greater plan, I was able to let go of the bitterness that comes from thinking someone else has ruined my life. If you want to be able to forgive somebody, you're going to have to have a staunch desire and belief in the sovereignty of God and his promise to turn everything for good. And that alone will enable you to forgive others. It's a belief in God's sovereignty. No one can mess up my life. No dad, no mom, no person. And I know some of you right now, you're trapped. I feel this on this morning, in a cycle of bitterness. It's you can't seem to shake because somebody seemingly ruined your life. I got homework for you. I got homework for you. I want you. I want you to seriously do this. Take a three-by-five card today. Go get that three-by-five card. Write out the name of that person. Write out the name of that person. Here's what I want you to do for seven days. Seven days, I want you to declare in prayer Genesis 50, 20, and say their name. Say that person's name and say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Say that person's name again. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Say that person's name again. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And you come back to church next Sunday and see if your attitude towards that person hasn't changed and your attitude towards that season of life hasn't changed. I bet it won't take 14 days before your heart will change. I bet it won't. Lord, you meant it for evil, but God, you turned it for good. Here's promise number two. Promise number one, no one can mess up God's will for my life. Promise number two, and this one's good. My own past mistakes can't permanently disqualify me from God's will either. Come on, somebody. Somebody say Hallelujah. My own personal mistakes can't disqualify me. Where do you get it, Craig? Look at verse 11. At least two times in the psalm, David asked for forgiveness for his own mistakes. Look at verse 11. He said, Lord, for the sake of your name, forgive my iniquity for its immense. Folks, he's not talking about JV iniquity. He's talking about varsity level iniquity. He's talking about state championship level sin. He ain't talking about freshman level Monday night, 6.30 p.m. sin. He's talking about Friday night lights under the big stage Mercedes-Benz stadium type sin. Big sin. God, you, you, you won't even allow my own sin to keep me from your will. And yet in the midst of his sin, he still prays for God's guidance and perfect plan for his life. Here's what you need to see. You ready? David believes that God's promises are greater than his own mistakes. Some of you say, well, I get the first one, Craig. I get it. I get that God would protect me from the mistakes of others, but my own, it seems like God just might let me suffer a little bit from my own mistakes, like God says to us, you brought this on your own self, so suffer a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's true that your sins and your mistakes bring consequences into your life, and they will be painful. I promise you they'll be painful. But even those don't disqualify you from God's ultimate plan for your life. Even those can't disqualify you. You look at Jacob. By the way, can I just say real quick, I've been reading through the book of Genesis again. Um, everything you need to know about the character of God is found in Genesis. Everything else in the Bible is just a footnote. Seriously, it is unbelievably packed. Everything you need to know about God's in Genesis. And you look at, you look at the next text, or J- Jacob, like Joseph. Remember what Jacob did? He sins against Esau. He doesn't do, He doesn't do JV-level sin. He steals his brother's birthright. He lies to his dad. I mean, this is varsity level sin. And what does he do? He had all kinds of negative consequences, but he's estranged from his family. You know who he meets? He meets a little pretty girl named Rachel, the love of his life. And from that relationship would come the line of the Messiah. Whoa, time out, Craig, dilemma. When I sin and Jacob sinned, did God say, oh, we gotta, send the, we gotta send the Messiah in the world? Well, then you're saying Jesus was plan B. Folks, this is so hard to understand. How can you sin, mess up your whole life, and Jesus come out of that life? That's the gospel we believe. Jesus was not plan B. He was not like, oh, I got to give you the Messiah because you messed up, Jacob. God uses our own mistakes to still glorify himself. What kind of compassion is this? God uses sinful humanity that consistently turns their back on him, and yet Jesus comes. Now, does that mean that Jacob, it's all right, that Jacob sinned? No. That sin affected him the rest of the life. It just still means the Messiah still came from that life. So listen to me. You ready? If you're willing to trust God, even your past sins cannot disqualify you from God's ultimate destiny for you. So I don't know what the enemy's been telling you over and over and over again, that you are disqualified or your past is consistently trying to fight, fall in your future. You have to be willing to let go of your past if you want to embrace your future. And you've got to realize, look what verse 10 says of this passage. Oh, this is my favorite one. He said, "He said, faithful, all the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth. You know what that means? How many of the Lord's ways are faithful love and truth? All of the Lord's ways are faithful love and truth. That means God has never dealt with you in one moment of one day that has not been faithful love and truth. He can't deal with you in any other way other than faithful love and truth. There's nothing God can do in your life that is separate from faithful love and truth. He can't act on your behalf apart from faithful love and truth. He can't punish you apart from faithful love and truth. He can't discipline you apart from faithful love and truth. All the ways of the Lord are faithful love and truth. He doesn't give up on you even when you give up on him. Or let me apply this another way. I've met people who were born out of sinful circumstances. I've met teenager after teenager who sat in my office with tears flowing down their face and they were born out of wedlock and they think maybe I'm a mistake. Maybe some dad or a, a strange dad said you were a mistake. Maybe you're in here today and you've been told before you are a mistake. No, friend, you were not a mistake. Maybe the circumstances by which you came into the world were sinful and that's on your parents and your parents will answer for God, but you were not a mistake. You said, Craig, how do I know? Because the Messiah came into the world through the mistake of another person. The Messiah came into the world through the sinful choice of other people and he's not a mistake so you aren't either. No, you were not a mistake. You were planned by God and you were purposed by God. I ain't gotten to the points yet. I'm just in the intro points. So how, how does God guide? How does God guide? Here's how God guides. He doesn't guide any particular way. He guides a particular person. Let me give you four characteristics of the person that God guides. You want to be the person that God guides? Number one, what kind of person receives the guidance of God? Those trained in the ways of God. And you want to be a person guided by God, you've got to be trained in the ways of God. You've got to be trained in the understanding of God. Craig, what do you mean? David is talking about what I call an inward familiarity with the ways that God acts. God trains you to act the way he wants you to act. The only way I can describe this is an athlete. An athlete, the best coach cannot instruct every athlete on how to respond in every situation because the defense is always changing. So the best athletes are ones who respond in the moments. The best athletes are the ones who can read a situation and then respond appropriately. Coaches cannot instruct you coach here being God, how to move and how to respond in every life situation and in every situation on the court. One of my favorite MJ interviews, Michael Jordan interviews, he had done some crazy split the defense move. And you know how MJ did in MJ style. He would get in the lane and then he would read the lane, right? He would read what was happening and he would do something amazing. And they interviewed MJ. It's on ESPN or on on YouTube. And he said, do you know what you're going to do before you jump? And MJ looked at him and he said, I jump and I decide in the air. He said, I jump and I decide in the air. He said, those aren't program moves. He said, I get into the lane, I jump, and they're in the moment responses that come from skilled training. He can be trained in the way. You say, Craig, how does the New Testament talk about that? Glad you asked. Hebrews 5, 13, 14, this is how the New Testament talks about it. He said, anyone who lives on milk is still an infant and you're not acquainted, you're not trained in the teaching on righteousness. You don't know about the teaching on righteousness. You're still a babe in Christ. You don't know the instincts of the ways of God. You're still a babe in Christ. But solid food is for the mature who by what adverb, what kind of use? Constant use. Not periodical use, not read your Bible once a month kind of use, not read your Bible once every other week kind of use, but through constant use. You have been constantly using the Word of God to, there's the Word, train themselves to distinguish between good and evil. Look, 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 look. If this was the things that God reveals in His Word, you wouldn't need to be trained to distinguish good from evil. You would always open up the Bible and it would tell you if it was good and evil. He's talking about the things that happen in your life that there's no scripture for. He's talking about the issues in your life when you're trying to discern God's will that there's no verse and chapter to point to. So if you are constantly trained by the word of God then you know instinctively how to respond to God in the moment. Constant use means I'm so saturated in scripture that application becomes second nature. Go back to my illustration with athletes. Sometimes I play basketball now and my mind thinks that I can read like MJ in the lane and my body tells my mind, you ain't going to do it. So what I do is I get down into the lane, and my mind, I don't see all the things that MJ sees. But when I get into the lane, I only see a few things. And the few things that I do see, my body says, I ain't doing that. And so my mind tells my body to do that, but my, my body doesn't do that. And so I look like, a, 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 like a, not less like a graceful athlete and more like a wounded duck coming in for a crash landing, right? And here I come and try to put the ball on the net. And, and, and that's because I'm not trained through constant use. I don't play basketball every day of my life. So here's your action step. You ready? Your action step is you got to get so saturated in God's word, so saturated in your mind and the thinking and the patterns of scripture. You are so dexterous with the scriptures, your right handed layup with the scriptures and your left handed layup with the scriptures. You can go behind the back with the scriptures and through the legs with the scriptures. Hey, listen, you can't be any more spiritual than you are scriptural. Or let me say it another way you won't live out the will of God any more than you know the word of God. So if you tell me you want God's will, but you're not reading God's word, you are kidding yourself. You're lying to yourself. People who live out God's will read God's word. It's the only way, folks. There's no other way. You can't live out God's will if you don't know God's word. So the type of person that God guides is the type of person who understands The ways of God. Second characteristic of a person that God guides, those obedient to the commands of God. So the first type of person that God guides is somebody who is trained in the ways of God. The second characteristic of a person that God guides is somebody who is obedient to the commands of God. Now, what do you mean, Craig? Look at the verse nine. The Bible says he leads the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. He teaches the humble. All the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth to those who keep his what? The faithful love and truth of God's ways are revealed to who? The obedient to his what? Covenant and decrees. The those who are obedient are the ones that God guides. You know what humble means? Leave it up a minute. Humble means you believe that God's way is best. Listen, the opposite is pride. When you assume your ways better than God's ways, that's pride. That's the pride of life. And David is saying, listen, you ready? You ready, church? It's the best thing I can give you. God's promise to give guidance in the areas Scripture doesn't address is only extended to those who are obeying Him in the areas that Scriptures do address. If you want guidance from God in the areas that Scripture doesn't address, you have to be obedient to God in the areas that Scripture does address. I have couples come and say, Pastor Craig, we want to know God's will for our life, but you're living together, cohabitating before marriage. And I would love to say to you, you won't know God's will for your life because you're not being obedient to do what he has revealed, and he certainly ain't going to speak to you about something that is not in Scripture when you're disobeying what is in Scripture. God, oh God, what's your will, and I just want to say to them, God is not going to talk to you. Does that mean? That's not mean, is it? That's loving. My God, I love you. I love you enough to tell you. God's like, um, I'm sorry, my mouth will be zipper locked until you do what I tell you to do. And when you do what I tell you to do, I will share with you what is not outlined in Scripture. It's the truth. It's the same way with business. Right areas of our business that maybe we're asking God, Lord, I want to know what it is that you have me to do in my business, or I'm praying for a job. Here's another one. Lord, I need a job, and yet I'm not following the principles of generosity to tithe and be faithful in giving. God's like, okay, I'm so sorry to speak. I I can't really speak to you about the job you have because you're not being obedient to the things scripture does address. And when you're not obedient to what God does address, he certainly won't give to you what he doesn't address in his word. The type of person God guides is the person who's obedient to the, the commands of God. Now listen to me, church. Anytime something hard happens in my life, hard, my resolve to know nothing except the cross or Jesus Christ and Him crucified and Him alone, that preaching in my life gets stronger and stronger because what I've learned is that when life gets hard, everything else seems so trivial. Then in the end, nothing else matters except Christ crucified, That's all that really matters. All that really, really matters in life is that I want Christ and Christ crucified. I want to know him in the fellowship of his suffering and the power of his resurrection. God, I want nothing more than to see you, Jesus, be magnified in my life. That's all I want, God. I want to be obedient to the command of God. You want want guidance over here? God says, be obedient over here. There's a kid's story. Now, I'm not saying mom and dad go pick it up because it's kind of a hard kid's story. There was an author about 150 years ago named George MacDonald. I haven't read it to my kids yet. It's a book called The Princess and the Goblin. Some of you may have read this, The Princess and the Goblin. Excellent story. They came out with a movie in 1991. But it's called The Princess and the Goblin. And some of you right now, you're saying, what is your will, God, in this decision? Here, let me give you the background of this story. There's a goblin kingdom and this goblin kingdom is underground, and it's trying to take over the above-ground kingdom, which is the human kingdom. There was a princess named Irene. You see Irene there in the beautiful dress. She realizes that the goblins are coming out from underneath her bed at night trying to capture her. So she gets pushed away to a new house where she has a fairy godmother. The fairy godmother, who is her grandmother, appears and gives her something special. The first night, she comes and gives her a ring and a piece of thread. And she says, the thread is so thin that when you stretch it out, you won't even be able to see it, Irene. But what I want you to do is I want you to grab it. You can only feel it, but if you'll grab it and follow it to the other end, you'll be in safety. So when you feel the goblins come out at night, I want you to reach down, grab the thread. You won't be able to see it, but you'll feel it in your hands. And I want you to follow that thread. And every night over the next few nights, a goblin would come out from under her bed. She would stand up, she would grab the thread and it would always lead her up the stairs to her grandmother. And her grandmother would be there and would rescue her from the goblin kingdom every time. But one night she goes to bed and when she goes to death, she, she realizes that, that some of the goblins are trying to get into her room and she follows the thread and the f- thread leads her outside away from the stairs. And it goes down into the woods, which is very terrifying for this young girl. And now she's walking through the woods and as she's going through the wood, it eventually takes her to where the goblins were. And she sees that the goblins are out in front of her and she's supposed to be following the thread, but yet her godmother, who has always been faithful to her, tells her, you got to follow the thread. If you want the guidance, you got to keep following the thread. And it goes deeper and deeper and deeper and don't doubt the thread. She hears her grandmother's voice say, don't doubt the thread. So she gets deeper underground and closer to danger. Finally, she reaches the end of this dead end boulders and she falls down and cries, but she can't turn back. She's got to walk through the boulders and she goes to the entrance of a cave and the goblins are now laughing at her and she finds out on the other side of the cave is another friend. That friend is Curdy. And eventually she goes deeper into the cave again and the goblins get worse and worse. And eventually, long story short, she's led to her grandmother and she sets another prison and her free Curdy in the midst of following the rope. And the whole idea is that you've got to trust the thread. I don't know about you, but some of you right now, you're asking God. You're asking God to lead you. I'm there, folks. I'm there. I'm there with you. I'm there with you. I'm there with you. You listen to me. I'm preaching from my heart this morning. And you pick up the thread. And you always thought the thread would lead to a fulfillment in your marriage. And you always thought the thread would lead you to a place where you would have a perfect marriage. And what happens is when you begin to say yes to Jesus, you begin to follow the thread. And let me tell you something. It doesn't look really good. And sometimes Sometimes you can't even see it with the naked eye. So what you do is you begin to follow the thread and you're walking by faith, not by sight. And you're walking in seasons of life when you thought you would be married, but all of a sudden it's leading you to greater singleness. And everybody else around you is getting married, but you're not getting married. And now in the midst of following the thread, you want to doubt the thread. You, you fought, started following Jesus nine years ago, but now nine years later, it's a little tough. And so you get here when all the, the, the goblins are around you and all the enemies mocking and laughing in your face. And the temptation is to let go of the thread and compromise and take on a relationship over here that is not God's best. But God says, if you want my guidance, you're going to have to keep following the thread. And I know it's tough, and I know it hurts sometimes. And I know it feels really, really difficult sometimes. But you got to keep following the thread. Even when it doesn't look like it's leading to the place that God has called you to lead, you keep following the thread. And then there's other times. Some of you, you business leaders. And when you're a business leader, you you think that if I tell the truth in my business, it's going to make me look worse than the people around me. And everybody else climbs the ladder of the corporate. Ladder to get ahead in life. And so to tell the truth would actually do something damaging to me, but you got to keep on following the thread. And if you'll keep on following the thread and be a person of integrity, be a person that says, you know what, even though it leads in ways that I can't see the outcome, I'm gonna follow the thread. Or maybe some of you you said yes to Jesus' call in your life in this season. My wife and I, we recounted this last week about the thread that we've been walking since we said yes in January of 2015, to say yes to church planning, to lead a place that we were rejoining, to say, God, yes, this is what we'll do for your kingdom. This is what we'll do if you ask us to do it. And I'm going to tell you, sometimes when you start following that thread, there's days in your life where what happens is you'll begin to fall on your knees. And there's times, sometimes where you can't even begin to, What people say, put one foot in front of the other, but you're just good to put one kneecap in front of the other. And you're just, you're just just trying to get one kneecap. He said, yay, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Did you hear me? It's a shadow of death. It ain't death. It's a shadow. It looks like death, but it is a shadow of death. He said, yo, though I walk through the valley, not sit down and wine, and some of you, what you've done is you've now become Indian style. you become crisscross applesauce in the valley, and you're saying, you know what? I'm not going to move any further, and God says, no, you better get yourself back up. Don't doubt the thread. I, I, don't you doubt the thread. I know it hurts. I know it hurts like hell. It's supposed to hurt like hell. You know why? Because when you get on the other side, you'll realize how sweet God's deliverance is, and you say, Craig, well, how do I have rest in a situation like this? Well, your rest is not a, a, a body byproduct of you getting to a new season of life. Some of you just asking, God, I need a new season. And God says, no, no, no. Rest is not a byproduct of a season. And rest is not something you acquire by you just, 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 just kind of toughing it out and pushing through. No, rest is a person. And his name's Jesus, and you are God's favorite place to be. Did you know that? I'm gonna say it again. You are God's favorite place to be. God doesn't want to be anywhere else other than you. He wants to be right with you in the middle of the valley. You are the place that God likes to be. And if you'll just keep on putting one knee in front of the other, maybe one time you need to put one elbow in front of the other. But if you'll keep on putting one elbow in front of the other and you'll keep on moving forward, I promise you, I promise you, you want to see the guidance of God, you don't let go of the rope. You don't let go of the thread. You want to see the provision of God, you don't let let go. If I can, if I could speak hope into your situation this morning, I don't know what it is you're facing. I don't know what challenge you're going up against. I don't know what a temptation it is to try to surrender some value or some integrity. I'm going to tell you that God has not left you unprepared for this tough season. You may feel unprepared for this tough season, but all the tough seasons you went previous to this season have built within you an everlasting hope and a character that says, even when I can't see God operating, he is still faithful faithful to me. That's why the Bible says no one who waits on you will be disgraced. You won't be the first biblical anomaly to God's eternal truth. You cannot be disgraced if you wait on the Lord. So listen, you're this morning going to have to do something with me. You're going to have to decide in whom you trust And waiting on God means doing things his way and trusting him to exalt you in his timing. And he will exalt you. He will exalt you. But you have to trust in his timing. One more. Maybe some of you in here, you have someone in your past to whom you refuse to extend forgiveness. And even though you know you should, you keep keep focusing on the unforgiveness. You listen to me. That's keeping you from experiencing God's blessing in the present and you say, I can't forgive them, I can't forgive them, I can't forgive them, I can't forgive them, it's gonna keep you if you don't, even when you're following the thread that looks like you have to forgive somebody, but it doesn't feel like the right thing to do, you have to trust in the thread enough. You have to trust that God guides those he loves. And all of the Lord's ways are faithful, love, and truth. Let me give you one more Old Testament story. I'm stuck in the Old Testament. Hey, Bible's awesome. You should read it sometime. This, this, this story of, of Naaman, and there's a servant girl with Naaman, and she's taken captive by Naaman. Remember the story in the, book, uh, in the Old Testament? And his slave, after he had done great violence to her people, if you have a slave girl, you know what that means you did? You killed her parents. And this slave girl of Naaman, he gets leprosy, and she now has the chance to say, "You better bet your Adam Dala, take that leprosy, bro." But you know what she does? She says, "If the man of God, if if the if the king could only find the man of God, Elisha." Why did she say this? This is phenomenal because she's already forgiven him and she followed the thread and she obeyed God and she became powerfully used by God to the point that she was included in the Bible. And there once again... The blessing of the nation of Israel hinged on a young girl whose parents were killed by an evil man to extend forgiveness and not allow bitterness to build in her heart. She kept following the thread even when the thread was leading to the dungeon. No one, verse 3, who waits for you will be disgraced. Waits means I patiently wait for God to fulfill His promise knowing He always will, but that is hard. One of my favorites... Verse 14, the secret counsel of the Lord is for who? Those who fear Him. The secret, whoa, 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 what is that? The secret counsel implies that there's nothing God will withhold from you. God will give it to you. Did you just hear me? There is nothing God will withhold from you. What do you mean, Craig? Craig. This phrase, by the way, if you want to underline in your Bible, this phrase indicates what I call the special moments of spirit guidance. What do you mean, Craig? I'm going to give you a 30,000-foot flyover. I'm going to write a book on this one day, I promise you. I really feel in my soul I'm going to. But this is, let me give you a 30,000-foot flyover of how God leads you through what I call spirit guidance. Spirit guidance, okay? Don't have time to hit the old message. There's multiple ways God does this in the Scripture. Here's the first way, the counsel of the church. The number one way we see God guides lives in the New Testament is the counsel of the church. You say, where's this? Acts 13, 2, Paul and Barnabas are ministering to the Lord. And what does the Holy Spirit say to the church? Separate me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work I've called them. When God wants to start the first missionary journey, guess who he doesn't tell? The people that are missionaries. Who does he tell? The church. So you know what that means? If you're one in God's will, but you're separated from a local church, you've missed an opportunity for God to speak to you through the Spirit the number one way God speaks through the Spirit in the New Testament book of Acts is through the church, not through individuals. That's good enough to shut the thing down right there, isn't it? Because we think God speaks individually, right? Self-actualization, individualization, American, Westerners. But how does God speak in the book of Acts? Through the community. When God says, I want Paul and Barnabas, he doesn't tell Paul and Barnabas. Who does he tell? He tells the church. Here's the second way that God leads, what I call the arrangement of circumstances. The arrangement of circumstances. Paul in Acts 16.2, he said, I wanted to go to Macedonia. Here, here, here. You know what the Bible says? The Holy Spirit, shut the door, shut the door, shut the door, shut the door, shut the door. What does that mean? It's an arrangement of circumstances. Here's the third way God leads, what I call the inner promptings in prayer inner promptings in prayer. What's the biblical illustration of this? Nehemiah, here I am, Old Testament again. What does Nehemiah do? He goes and rebuilds the whole nation of Israel's walls in 52 days. Go read that book. Did you know what Nehemiah never does in the book of Nehemiah? God never one time tells him to go rebuild the walls. Nehemiah 2.12, he felt the burden to do it and God blessed it. Did you just hear me? Not one time did God ever speak to him and say, go rebuild him. He felt the inner prompting when he prayed to his God. Some of you say, oh, I need a sign from God. No, you don't. Your heart's burning to go serve in DP kids. Get your tail in DP kids and serve. Oh, I got a burden for young people. Well, get here on a Wednesday night and serve young people. Oh, I got a burden to see counseling happen. Well, get your tail in a connect group and start counseling people around you. Inner promptings in prayer. Become the way in which the Spirit guides us. You can do a whole message on that. What does it mean? It means when, when those things are necessary, God will give them. The secret counsel of the Lord belongs to those who fear him. You say, okay, I got it. Woo, got it, Craig. I got it. Those who are trained in the ways of God, obedient to the commands of God, but practically, what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, number three, trusting in the promises of God. Trusting in the promises of God. Trusting. God's promise goes with His instruction to obey. His promises. That's what He says in verse 3. He will. The secret counsel of the Lord will guide you if I'm trusting in His promise. Here's what you do. Let me give you the practical now. Craig, I really want to know which direction to take. Okay, here's what you do. You take advantage of every means you have at your disposal. So here's what you do you take Scripture, you take your reason. You take the ways the Spirit might be leading you. You take what your spiritual leaders are saying. You take what the church is communicating to you, around you. You take, you take the, the, the desires that you've placed in your heart. You take the passions that God has given you. You take the experience of how God used you in the past. And here's what you do. Here's the secret. You make the best decision you can and what seems wisest to you. And then here it is. Here's the real secret. Trust that God is guiding you just like he promised he would. Don't sit in indecision for years. You take all that you see, your disposal and then make a decision. People say, "Craig, how in the world, how in the world did you make a decision to go into ministry?" I get that question a lot. Like, did you have a family member in ministry? No, I didn't. But I had friends who would not go into ministry for years of their life because what they did is they kept on praying for God to give them signs and they were setting on their hands. And they were not doing anything. Here's what I did. I said, okay, God, I want your will for my life. But you know what I'll do? I'll enroll at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And I'll go be a pre-med major. That's what I'll do. I'll do chemistry. I'll finish up three years undergrad. I'll take my fourth year undergrad in Memphis. And I'll be a pediatric neurosurgeon. That's what I'll do. I'll operate on kids. I'll help them. And when you force yourself to move forward, you will force God's hand to guide you. But if you ain't picking up your feet, he's forced to put your foot in the right place. So when you pick up your feet, he will put your foot where it needs to go. But if you're sitting down on your rear, he won't guide you. So when you get up and you start walking, you won't miss it. So the difference between graduating from UTK and being a doctor then graduating in 2007 from Lee University and being a pastor was the fact that I got up and I said, God, guide me. Let me be the person you guide. And God began to drop my feet where my feet needed to drop. You just make the decision. You make the decision. You make the decision. Well, Craig, well, oh, what if it's the wrong one? Trust God to guide you. You know what? You know what James said in Acts 15, 28? Listen to how flippant this is. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. See how flippant that was? Seemed good. Let the Gentiles be a part of the Christian faith. You would have thought this would be a little bit bigger moment for God's people. Are we going to let the whole rest of the world be faithful believers or not? Does in good to the Holy Spirit and thus A.K.A. when you know the Holy Spirit well enough, He'll let you speak for Him without Him even speaking. When, when you when you get trained in the ways of God and you get obedient to the promises of God and you're obedient to the commands of God you become the person that God begins to guide in every season of life God begins to lead you instinctively you begin to instinctively Craig what's your other favorite life verse Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 I already saw it on the board out there what does he say trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not upon your own understanding you know what that means the burden is not on you to figure it out don't lean on your ability to figure it out. I've been in suffering the last month and I have racked my brain from daylight to dark trying to figure out why I'm going through what I'm going through. What I'm doing physiologically, what I'm doing physically, what's happening chemically with me, what's happening in my stomach. He says, don't lean on your own ability to understand it. What is he saying? He's saying when you get to that season of life, you trust in God's ability to show you, not your ability to figure it out. And as long as you trust your ability to figure it out, God will not show you. But when you start trusting in his ability to show you and trust in his ability to lead you and guide you, then what does he say? He says, Acknowledge him in all of your ways, and he will direct your paths. Look at verse 6. There's two phrases. One is yours, one is his. Do you know what yours is? He says. He says, Do what you know to obey. Acknowledge him in all your ways. Do what you know to obey. Use the wisest decision in every situation. And then what's God's desire? He will direct your paths so you can lift up your hands and say thank you God and then you trust God is guiding you I have found through the years I do what I call a sheep prayer everybody say sheep prayer can I give you a sheep prayer I'm going to give you Proverbs 3 5 and 6 in a sheep prayer sheep prayer I got bad news good news which one you want first bad news good news bad news alright bad news when, by, when God wanted to think of an animal to describe you Here, this is bad news When God thought, oh, what animals on the earth can I use to describe my people? I'm going to use sheep. Folks, sheep are walking feed bags. They are stupider than stupid does. They have left more than five T's on the triangle at Cracker Barrel. They are ignoramus. Okay? Even the wisest of us are idiots. Can I just say that? Hey, anybody wisest among us? You're an idiot, according to God, because you're a sheep and you you can't walk, you don't know where to go, you're blind, you can't see more than four, 4 feet in front of you, you back yourself into into corners, you fall off of cliffs, you can't you you don't know where to get, you turn yourself over and you get shocked, you stick your legs up in there and you can't turn yourself right back up. You you have no ability to survive on your own. Here's the here's that's bad news, but here's the good news. You serve an exceptional shepherd. You serve a shepherd who loves to take care of dumb things. You serve a shepherd who loves to reach down and touch and to, to lead and to guide dumb sheep. And, and listen, if sheep ever get anywhere in life, it's not because of the competence of the sheep. It's because of the competence of the shepherd. If you ever get to any blessing in your life, if you ever get to any good season of your life, if you ever get to any place flowing with water, if you ever get to any place where you're eating any grass, if you ever get to a place where your belly's full, it's not because of the competence of who you are as a sheep. It's because of the competence of your shepherd. And so you can say to God, make it obvious to me, God. Make it obvious to me, God. Here's the good news. God says, if you won't lean on your own decision-making ability, but you will lean on my decision and my willingness to obey me. God says, I gave up on your decision-making ability back in the Garden of Eden, Craig. I already made up my mind. You won't ever choose what's right. You won't ever choose what's desired. So you know what I do? If I'm going to do something with humanity, I better come down in the form of a man and I better teach him how to live, and I better be a high priest who is not touched or is touched with the infirmity of our weakness, who would lead us through the, the, the valley of the shadow of death, who would not leave us in the midst of our terror and our tragedy and our, our, our tough season. And God says, I will lead my people. So he says, don't lean on your own understanding, but acknowledge me. Again, the question in the psalm is not how God guides, but whom God guides. Because guidance in the Bible is not something God gives to you. It's something he does for you. He does for you. He does for you. He does for you. you. Finally, last one, maybe very important. I'll close with it. Those who are trained in the ways of God, those who are obedient to the commands of God, those who are trusting in the promises of God, and number four, this is the most important one, I think. Those depending on the grace of God. Those depending on the grace of God. Several times in this psalm, David talks about God's rescue of him. He talks about God's forgiveness and deliverance. Look at verse 10, read it with me. Verse 10, he says, all the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth. Some of you got a Hebrew Bible there in front of you. That word, faithful love and truth, is the Hebrew word chesed, which means unconditional covenant love. Unconditional covenant love. All of the Lord's ways with his children are unconditional covenant type love. Wow. Can I confess to you something? of these last few weeks on days that have been really tough for me and when I've been suffering I I would say in the midst of this congregation I know the word of righteousness as much as anybody in this room not that's not a here good statement I've just known it taught it for 12 years and even when I've gone through suffering you know what haunts us the most what haunts us most in the pursuit of God's will is that we still think God maybe has mixed feelings towards us. And when we're suffering, we'll start making comments like, well, maybe he is paying me back because I sinned in this way. Well, you've been faithful to lead his people, but you have sinned in this way, and so you're going to pay for it, Craig. See, See, we really think, we really think that he is not faithful, love, and true in everything. We don't believe it. We don't believe it. what haunts us when we pursue the thread is we think that there comes a moment when His faithful love and truth comes to somewhat faithful love and truth. And we think God says, oh, I don't want you to be that happy. Oh, you're going to be that happy? Well, here comes some payment. I'm going to get even with you, Craig. Oh, paying back with a bad thing. So what happens is in life is is when good seasons happen, what we do is we wait on the bad. We think the shoe's about to drop. Come on, church. Don't don't let me just preach to myself this morning. When something good and prosperous is happening, we're waiting for the other shoe to fall. Can I tell you how God guides you and what God gives you is no longer based on the worthiness of how you've lived, but on the worthiness of how Jesus lived? Can I tell you that no matter what situation you face from this point forward, it is not predicated on how you've lived your life even since you've known him. It's predicated on how he lived his life when he lived on this earth. Not on what I've done, but what he's done. And all of the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth. All of the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. So I don't have to wait for the other shoe to drop because the other shoe dropped on 33 AD on the head of a 5850 850-pound man outside of Jerusalem on Golgotha. The shoe dropped once and for all on his head and it crushed him. There is no other shoe dropping on you. All that remains for you and all that God desires for you is to hang on to the thread even when you can't see the thread. Even when you're surrounded by death, hell, and the grave. Even when it looks like you're being led into a cave of goblins. You keep on following the thread because here's the verse I've been praying. Proverbs 10 22. Look what he says. The blessing of the Lord, it makes one rich and he adds no sorrow with it. Not a little bit Not a little sorrow to make it even. He adds no sorrow with it. No sorrow. No sorrow. You hold on to the rope and you embrace it. You embrace it. This is my prayer that I am blessed with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. I can say all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning. That means he doesn't have mixed feelings. There's no shadow of turning in him. He doesn't have one feeling towards you one day and another feeling towards you the next day. He has no shadow of turning. His feelings towards you never change. And so I can say every good and perfect gift comes from above. I can say with Psalm 48 daily he loads me with benefits. I can say that he who began a good work in me would be faithful to complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. I can say may my whole body, soul, and spirit be kept blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I can say I've lived and I've, I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging for bread. I can say I see the, the blessing of the Lord in the land of the living, I shall not die, but I shall declare the Lord's works. I can say that in him have I known that though my eyes have not seen him, my heart knows him very well. I can say that the blessing of God is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. I can say that I have been redeemed in Christ and justified freely by the redemption that comes through his blood. I can say that I've been given enough grace to reign in life through Jesus Christ. How much more is the blessing of God? I can say that he who knew no sin became sin for me, that I might become the righteousness of of God in Christ Jesus, and through every step of the thread, God will be faithful to lead the one who's trained in the ways of God, who's obedient to the commands of God, who trusts in the promises of God, and depends on the grace of God. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.